Heavenly Father, what a kindness that we can gather. What a kindness that we can worship you. Really, it's a miracle that we can come before a holy God and you love to hear us sing praises to you. You you welcome us in our struggles and our doubts. That your generosity and your invitation is so expansive. Really, your invitation to come to faith is to every person here, regardless of where they come from, what they've done. And God, in your in your generosity that you would speak to us. So, so often we want to hear from you and we forget that your word is you speaking to us. So might we hear it that way. You're living an active word that it would come alive to us. Father, what we pray, as we pray every single week, it's what every single person in this room without exception needs most. Whether they've been walking with Christ for 63 years, whether they've had a fantastic week, God, whether this week was really hard, whether they're, they're here and, and they haven't been in a church for 13 and a half years, whether they're here for the first time, whether they are here and they're, they're, they're asking questions about Christ, but they would not identify as a Christian. God, wherever we are, what we all need most is to leave this time more impressed with Jesus, more full of hope and convinced of all that he promises to do. So Holy Spirit, we ask you would lift Christ high and you draw our hearts after him. In Jesus' name, amen. A few years ago, we hired what's known as an executive pastor. That's someone to come in to pastor the church with pastoral sensibilities, but also to try to help us to, 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 to run well. And so the person we hired was Paul. He was doing the announcements and the, the kind of welcome and pastoral greeting this morning. And when he came, one of the things I asked him is I said, Paul, I'm only going to give you enough to get you going, but then I want to treat you for 30 days like a consultant in our church. I want you to come in with fresh eyes, and I want you to, to meet with as many people as you can and just listen, and then I would love to see a report at the end of those 30 days of what are you seeing here that's beautiful and good, and then what are you seeing here that, that needs some work? And I don't think this will surprise you if you've been a part of our church for, for any amount of time. His report came back, and it was like, this is a really good church. It's a really healthy church. Obviously, we have things to work on, but, but I wasn't surprised when he said that. You are a wonderful, wonderful community. Not every church, though, if you were going to consult with them, you would come back and say, this is a wonderful church. The church in Corinth, which is the location of what we're going to look at today, if you went in there for 30 days and you came back and you wrote a report and you hand it to the, to the leadership of that church and said, here's what I've found. Your church is full of divisions. You have all these factions of people that have picked their favorite leaders and they've gathered around them, not just they like their preaching, they like their style, but they're, they don't like the other ones. And so you had these cliques that got formed. You would say, I've also found that your church is full of people that are sinning sexually in some of the craziest ways. In fact, one of the lines from 1 Corinthians says this, they are sinning in ways that the pagans won't even tolerate. And yet you boast in it. Just sinning rampantly, don't even care. You, you're just boasting in it. Christians, you're like, I came out, I found out, like, you're, you got all these lawsuits against each other. Like, you can't get along in the gospel, and you'd rather, be, you'd rather get yours than be defrauded for the glory of Christ, and the world is looking at it. They were getting drunk during communion. Like, hey, you know, I went to one of your gospel communities, you got together, and everybody was just getting plowed. 
You know, the way they do communion at this time is different than, than we receive communion each week. It's not, it's not a token representative. What they would often do is like a full meal. And what was happening is people were coming in and they were indulging to a place of drunkenness. And then what was happening is the wealthy in that church were keeping those that were less well off out. They were basically like, hey, we're going to set up the fancy table at the center of the dining room and everyone else can wait till we're done and they can have the scraps that are left over. This church was a mess. They were arrogant know-it-alls, full of knowledge, but lacking in love. They had so many spiritual gifts, these gifts that God gives for the building up of his body, but they were using it to try to elevate themselves over everyone else. Look at the gifts I have. I'm varsity Christian. You, not so much. They, um, they had really bad theology. We'd actually call it heresy. There's some things that this church believed that are so contrary to the word of God like this. They denied that Jesus rose bodily from the dead. So if you wrote up, if you said, here, let me give you the summary report on Corinth, you would say, these are really messed up people with really messed up theology. It doesn't take long to see that Corinth, the church in Corinth, is arguably one of the, the quote-unquote worst churches in the New Testament. And yet that's not what the Apostle Paul sees, the one who wrote this letter back to them, who planted this church and pastored them for a few years. It's not all he saw. It's definitely not what he started with. He saw something in that group of really struggling, really stumbling, really messy, really immature Christians that I would guess many of us would actually maybe miss. And so what he does in these first nine verses is he starts with that. And, and what he's doing here is where we get the, the second house rule of Redeemer Church, these house rules trying to make real God's doctrines in the culture of our church is that Paul does this. He starts with what's right, not with what's wrong. If you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? This is wonderful words to one of the worst churches. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Feel free to grab a seat. The first uh, phrase of verse 2 is what Jay Bengal calls a great and joyful paradox. This thing that doesn't feel like it should come together, but it represents such incredible news and, and joy, this church of God in Corinth. When the word church is used in the Bible and the way it's used by theologians and the, the church really at large over history is in a few different ways. It can mean the church universal, kind of the church in all places or the, the, the church invisible, like all true believers at all times throughout history. But the church can also be used as it is in this location here in verse two is particular. It's a local church. It's a local group of Christians 
with real lives and real stories and real sin and real immaturity, and they are really a mess. And look what they're called. The Church of God. The Church of God in Corinth. God stamps his name to them. He says, I'm going I'm I'm to put my name on to this church. It's so different than how we think of where we would want to attach our names. And I think about like the, the bumper stickers and in a rightful way as parents boast about their kid's accomplishment, you know, proud parent of an honor student. You know, or maybe your son or your daughter went into the military. You know, such an honorable thing to say, proud parent of a Marine. You know, what I've never seen is like moderately disappointed parent of a mediocre child. <laughs> I'm sure it exists. <laughs> and whoever wrote that bumper sticker, probably from Corinth. Um, <laughs> yo, we, we go after the best. We go after the best. This is the season of fantasy football. So some of you are really into fantasy football. The, the opportunity for regular people to kind of piggyback on the shoulders of really gifted people to pretend like you're part of it. So I'm with you. I've done it. I enjoy it. And so if you've never done fantasy football or fantasy sports of any kind, here's basically how it works. There's a lot of nuances and variations, but you and some buddies or some friends say, hey, we want to be in a league together. So you got eight friends and you create eight teams. And each week, those teams are going to square off against each other. And what you'll do before the game start is you'll pick like out of your roster, you'll say, okay, I'm going to pick this quarterback and this running back and these wide receivers and this defense and this special team. So you pick all these different things and you assemble your team to try to beat whoever you're playing against. But where you assemble them from is something known as a draft. And so before the season starts, you do a draft. You get your buddies together, you pick a time, and you go through your draft. And the goal of the draft is that you try to pick the very best that's left for that position. Unless you're intentionally trying to throw the league, Unless you're intentionally trying to lose, you're going to pick whoever is going to give you the best chance of winning. God picked Corinth. That's that's stunning. Like all of their messes, all of their, knowing exactly who they'd be. He didn't say, you know, I'm going to, who do I think is going to like represent me super well? What kind of people could I assemble together? And man, the world will look and say, look how incredible they are. He picked the worst. He picked messes. That is so deeply encouraging. I picked Le'Veon Bell in 2018. Um, for some of you, you, you know uh, Le'Veon. He was an incredible, incredible fantasy sports pick in 2017. It's my first pick. He didn't sign a contract in 2018, which meant he didn't play a single game the entire season. Now it's the greatest bust in 30 years of fantasy sports. <laughs> but God doesn't look at us like we're a bust. He says, mine. He says, you're mine. The church of God in Corinth. Here's something that's right. No matter what, you're God's. No matter what. That's a really big deal. In Christ, there's always something right. Then the verse continues. You're not just God's. Look what it says in, 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 in verse 2. To the church of God that is in court, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, literally called saints. 
word sanctification means to be holy, means to be set apart, means to be blameless. Um, and when we think of sanctification, there's three ways that it's most often understood in the Bible. It's um, this idea of positional sanctification um, the, the, or, or definitive sanctification. It's, it's identity, but it's like who you are. It's something that's been done, that you've been set apart, that you are a saint. There's a, there's a, way of understanding kind of like the everyday present tense sense of sanctification. It's, it's experiential sanctification. Like, do I feel like a saint? Am I acting like a saint? Am I growing? Progressive sanctification would be a way of phrasing this. Like, am I growing more and more like Christ as I go throughout my life? And then there's this third sense, this kind of future sense, which is, which is ultimate sanctification or future sanctification or perfect sanctification. We could use another biblical word for it, glorification. And it's saying, I will one day finally be that which I'm supposed to be. And so we can think of sanctification, these three ways of like, this is who I am in Christ. This is who I'm becoming in Christ. And this is what I am guaranteed to be because of Christ. Most of us, though, when we think about sanctification, it's not a comfort. It's actually a disruption because we're focused on the middle one. Experiential, how am I doing? Well, if I'm honest... Most of the time, I'm actually not doing that great. I'm not living that well. I am a mess. I hear the stuff at Corinth, and I could compare it to my track record, and it would be way worse. How the Bible primarily uses that phrase, or that word, or that concept, and how it's used in this text, is the first sense. This is what you are. Totally irregardless of what you do. You are Sanctified. Actually, the two words that are used there, one of them is used in the sense of something passive, something done to you in the past that goes on forever. Paul is beginning with these wonderful words to a really messy church and saying, hey, let me remind you who you are. You're saints. That's built not on how you do, not on how you perform, not on how godly you are, but on what Christ has done. When my wife and I lived in New England, we lived north of Boston for a few years when, we were, when I was going to seminary. And one of the things about New England, amongst many things that I lo- loved, um, one of the things that was curious about New England is they are like really into antiquing. Like they are super, super into it. They make a sport of antiquing. And some people get really good. There's this story of someone from New Haven, Connecticut. They went to a yard sale and they found this white porcelain bull and they bought it for $35. And they looked at this bull, and they knew they had found something really special. So they found an expert to try to help them figure out what's this bull actually worth. And so they found an, an expert who came back and told them that what you have right there is from the 15th century, from the Ming Dynasty. And it's worth between three hundred to $500,000. Yeah, you, you're going to start antiquing now. <laughs> it's one of only seven bulls known to exist, and the other ones are all in museums from this particular type. And, and I, what, I, what I love about this story is what Angela McCater, who's a Chinese ceramics expert, said. She goes, it was immediately apparent to us that we were looking at something really very, very special. It's always quite astounding to think that this still happens, that these treasures can be discovered. When you think about yourself... And I'll talk to the, to the Christians. When you think about yourself, dear Christian, and you look in that mirror, and you reflect on your death, how often do you go, say these words, you know, it was immediately apparent to me 
that I'm looking at something very, very special. Not a $35 find at a yard sale, but what this text says, saints, sanctified, holy, set apart for the Lord, vessels. The Bible uses language like vessels for honorable use. Paul is beginning with what's right. He's saying it's not based on how you live. It's based on how Christ lived. And because of how Christ has lived through faith in him, this is your identity. This is your ultimate identity. Well, why don't we feel more like this? I think because we're almost exclusively focused on experiential sanctification. How am I doing? Not how has Christ done? Here's something that's right. No matter what you feel like, whether you're winning or losing, if you're in Christ, you are a sanctified saint. Love, text continues on. I give thanks, verse four, I give thanks to my God always for you. That's bananas. I mean, Paul, when he, when he wrote this, I mean, he pastored this church, he planted this church for years, but when he, the reason he wrote this letter is he wasn't in Corinth anymore. And actually what he was getting was reports about this church that he loves. And the reports were not good. It was all the sorts of things I, I, I shared with you. They, they were in some rampant sin, didn't care, tons of infighting, tons of conflict, tons of division. That had to be so heartbreaking for him. And yet, look what it says. When I think of you, I give thanks for you. I'm constantly thanking God for you. They were a mess, and yet they were a reason for joy. You know why? I would suggest to you that Paul wasn't focused primarily on how they were doing, but who they were by the grace of God. He wasn't blind to the fact that they were messy, but he could see who they were going to become by the grace of God. Something that verse 4 alludes to, this grace given, but doesn't unpack completely, but is unpacked throughout the letter of 1 Corinthians, is that God's grace is always effective. God's grace will always win out. God's grace will always produce something. What they're declared here in verse two of chapter one, that they are saints, will one day be fully true. If you go to 1 Corinthians 15, when the, the resurrection comes and we're new creation, it says in the blink of an eye, we shall become new. And Paul knows that. So he's able to say, I give thanks that something's begun. I give thanks because I know, I, I know that Christ has got you. I don't have to look at your lives for that. I, can, I know that Christ has got you. And Paul, he's, he's someone who said to another church, the church in Philippi, he says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Probably one of my favorite parts or insights in what is definitely my favorite book on marriage and relationships out of the book, The Meaning of Marriage by Tim and Kathy Keller um, is this, quoting them here. Within the Christian vision of marriage, here's what it means to fall in love. It is to look at another person and get a glimpse of what God is creating and to say, I see who God is making you and it excites me. I want to be part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey you are taking to his throne. And when we get there, I will look at your magnificence and say, I always knew you could be like this. I got glimpses of it on earth, but now look at you. I think Paul sitting back as a pastor, looking at this people that he loves in his shared life, hearing the reports of their mess, but he knows that they will be magnificent. Paul saw what was wrong, but he didn't start there. He didn't fixate there. 
Let me give you a practical way this works out um, for our church, and maybe it could spill into to your lives as appropriate, maybe into your homes and relationships, but in our meetings, staff meetings, uh, elder meetings, full council meetings, um, really almost like most meetings, we try to do this. We try to have a start with what's right time. Say, so we're going to start with what's right. We, we might have a lot of issues to work on, a lot of things to address, but we're always going to start with what's right because there's always something right because God's grace is here. It might be, we are such a mess, but God is good. His mercy is more. We might just have to begin there because things are so, but his mercy is more. And we are going to start there. And what it does is it tunes our hearts to see what Paul saw even in a mess of a church. That God's grace is there and God's grace is effective. Now, this isn't ignoring what needs to get worked on. What it's doing and what this house rule is doing and what this orientation is doing, here's the goal of it, to battle the pessimism that so often sets in to our lives for ourselves and for others. To battle the sort of discouragement that sets in for us and for others, to battle the sort of despair, particularly if you have wrestled through the same things for a long time and continue to fail. Last week's house rule, it's okay to not be okay, is really fundamentally about honesty. And so we want a place that says, hey, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. We can struggle. We can even sin, not that sin is safe, not that it has no consequences, but we can be honest about the fact that we sin, that we can be honest. I would suggest to you that this house rule and the third one that we'll hopefully get to at the end of this sermon is really about gospel optimism. It's about gospel optimism, not not saccharine, not this fake kind of like, let's cover over everything but like a real robust belief that King Jesus has come and claimed and forgiven and called you saints and says you will be with him and that his grace is doing something. Not blind to reality, but more alive to the ultimate reality of of what God's grace can do. All right, here's something that's right. God's grace, when it's given, means there's always something good to see. And then he goes on and I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God given that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift. Those verses are actually wild if you understand what's being said in light of the rest of the book. What Paul is doing is saying, I praise God you're so lavishly gifted. And then he picks the very gifts that they're abusing the most in the church. You're you're really bright, your words, your wisdom, and then the gifts they have, these, these gifts that God has given. He, he actually goes to the very thing that most of us, when we're around people that are obnoxious and they're gifted, but they're obnoxious, we don't usually praise God for that. But Paul does. See, what he understands is that every strength has a shadow side. And instead of just being angry that they're, they're, they're abusing those gifts, what he does is says, I praise God you have them. And maybe in that place we can learn to steward them. Here's something that's always right. Even if you're using the gifts wrong, we praise God that you got them. I'll give you another one as we continue on. So that you are not lacking in any gifts, verse 7, as you wait, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. I'm really fascinated by endurance athletes. Those that can just, they they seem like they have this engine that can go and go and go. They just are able to suffer. 
Um, they, they, they go for hours. And, and some endurance athletes don't just go for hours. They'll go for like a day. They won't just go for a day. Sometimes they'll go for two or three days. Like in the world of, of running, I mean, they, they, might go, they might go hundreds of miles with little to no sleep. Uh, Marcus Knuckles, who was playing drums today, um, beyond being a drummer and, and a wonderful teacher in our community, is an incredible runner. Here's what he's done the last three summers. You can compare your, yourself to this. Um, <laughs> is he, he ran from, from the border of, of Canada and Washington down to the border of California and Mexico. Two, so he started three summers ago, did Washington. And then last summer, what he did is he went to Oregon and he gets dropped off in, in Oregon, probably right there at like Astoria. He's going to run down to Ashland and they <laughs> kick him out of the car. Here's your double wide jogging stroller. We're going to throw some camping gear in. Have fun. And for like the next 11 days, he just ran down the highway with his double jogging stroller and his camping gear. And he just set up camp wherever he ended up. 30 miles, 40 miles. You know, how are you doing? I know I'm not when I compare myself to that. But if you are looking for a little physical challenge, I have one for you. It's coming up October 21st, so you need to sign up soon. It is the start of what's called the Big Backyard Marathon. And one way, it's kind of simple. You run a, a loop. You need to run a loop or a lap in under an hour, and you only have to f- cover this distance, 4.1 miles. Pretty doable if you're a runner or like a really fast walker. You got this. But here's, here's the trick with this one. You run until there's no runners left. You do a loop in an hour. You run it in 30 minutes. You can take a 30-minute break. You run it in 57 minutes, you get a three-minute break. And then when the hour starts again, you run it again, and you run it again, and you run it again, until you're the only one left. Every 24 hours, you will have run 100 miles. So 4.1 miles times 24, you run 100 miles. In 2021, the individual world champion, so this is the person that won it in 2021, ran for three and a half days. They ran a total of 354.16 miles. I want to keep the decimals because I just feel like at that level, you have to keep... The decimal, don't short me, man. 300, you want to win this one? 341 miles. Here's the other part of this, uh, this race that I think is actually a little bit sick. Um, only one person ever technically finishes it. Every other person that entered this race, and if you've ever entered a race and you don't finish, like that's, that's like, you're afraid of that because here's what will get published for life on the results of the race. DNF, did not finish. I ran 187 miles. (laughs) So? 234 miles. You know, yawn. Um, It takes an unbelievable amount of grit to make it to the end, and only one person does. That's not super encouraging to most of us, but Christ, it's so different. But Christ, it's so different. These twin ideas in verse 7 and 8 is this idea of waiting and completion. If you're in Christ, you're going to make it. No one in Christ DNFs. The reality is there's only one really made it, but then he shares the trophy with us. Like as you're waiting for the Lord to come back, this, this promise in these verses and imagine this given to people that are such a mess and that are about to hear about to read all the ways that their sin is so notorious it's spread around the Mediterranean you're guaranteed to get there if you're in Christ you are guaranteed to get there
Not because of our grit, but because of God's grace and tenacity towards us. Paul, he is a gospel optimist. He's talking to what is arguably one of the worst churches. He's like, I know you're going to get there. Some of us are so focused on what's wrong, we lose sight of what's right. We look at our ebbs and flows, maybe more ebbs than flows, and we get really discouraged. And maybe what God wants us to do is to look a little bit more at what he has done in Christ and what he promises to do in Christ. That as we wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus, we look to the one who will sustain us to the end. Oh, if some of us look at how we're doing right now, it feels like we'll never make it. But that's the point of this. We don't look exclusively at how we're doing. But we look to Christ. I love this line from J.I. Packer of Knowing God. Your faith will not fail while God sustains it. You are not strong enough to fall away while God is resolved to hold you. Here's something right. If you're in Christ, you're guaranteed to get there. No matter what. There's so much in this passage about God's commitment to get us there. The Corinthians became Christians because it was God's will and plan. If you go up to verse one, Paul says, I'm an apostle by the will of God. What that means is he was marked out by God to go preach the gospel and see churches get planted. He was in Corinth because God wanted those Christians to become Christians. If you're a Christian, it's because God willed it to happen. It goes on, and they, they, they get called the, the church of God. They're sanctified saints because of the work of God in Christ. They're, they're giving gifts because of God's grace. Verse 4 or 5 and following, they're guaranteed to get there because God is faithful. Verse 9, that's a lot of stuff that's right, and I want you to hear this. It's a lot of stuff that's right that has nothing to do with us. It has, well, it has everything to do with us because we're the recipients. It has nothing to do with our performance which is wonderful because it's unlosable. All of this is unlosable. Let me read a paragraph from our member handbook about this house rule. This house rule stops us from exclusively fixating on our sin and brokenness and points us to see glimpses of God's grace in ourselves and in others. And that's a, that's a helpful reminder, not just us, but others. This house rule means we give lots of attention, stage time, encouragement, and celebration to all the good things Jesus is doing in our church, in someone's marriage, in our GCs, in our spiritual growth, in our parenting, and on. This is the path to feeling Christ's encouragement in our ordinary lives. This outlook is not naive positivity. This is biblical reality. There's so much that's right, even when so much is wrong, if you're in Christ. Now, our city and our culture, I want to make a little commentary, kind of a cultural apologetic here. Our city and culture could, just like it's okay to not be okay, they could say, hey, let's start with what's right. Let's come with like a half glass full attitude. We're going to come into our day with positive emotions and positive feelings and positive outlooks. And, and that's, that's not bad. It, it's nice, I suppose. But my question is this, what's it built on? These good vibes and good feelings and positive statements, what's it really built on? What's, what's the substance behind it? I would suggest to you it lacks substance. It's shallow. See, what Jesus offers when he says, hey, we're going to start with what's right, is he offers something solid. He actually offers a new identity that can't be taken. He offers a righteousness that can't be tarnished. He offers a future glory that can't be stopped. See, when we start with what's right out of what Christ has done, it's more than, hey, I hope it goes well. 
when you know it won't. Because of the victory of Christ, you know it will ultimately go perfect. Here's what you have. Here's what Jesus offers. Your gods, your sanctified saints, your richly gifted, you're guaranteed to get there. It's a solid rock on which to stand. You're clothed in his righteousness. And his verse eight says, you will be guiltless at the day of Christ Jesus. That's a, see when we hear the day of the Lord, what that's talking about is when Christ returns. And when Christ returns, he's returning to, to judge the living and the dead. And, and, and what this verse is saying it, you know, it, it, the day of the Lord is not just like, oh, this is a wonderful day for everyone. It's actually a terrifying day for some that do not find themselves in Christ before a holy God and a holy judge who brings justice. Richard Sibbs, an um, uh, uh, old-time theologian pastor who is so gentle and tender, wrote a whole book on a verse, a bruised reed he will not break. And so he's not throwing shade at God when he says this. He goes, outside of Christ, God is terrible. It means that his judgments are just and true. An ultimate reality is coming. And what this verse is saying to a group of really, really messy people and through them to us, you can stand before the great holy God, guiltless. Again, not because of what we've done, but because of what we're given, because of what Christ has done. The Phillips paraphrase of these verses says it like this. He will keep you steadfast in the faith to the end so that when his day comes, you need fear no condemnation. God is utterly dependable. And it is he who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's how everything's right because we're in fellowship with the son. This doesn't just mean in community with him. It actually means partaking of his life. That his perfection becomes our perfection. That, that when he went to the cross, that the judgments we deserve, that he took those judgments, that there's none left for us. That's the good news of the gospel, that Christ has done what we have failed to do. That we, like the Corinthians, can be a mess, can be worse, and, the, and yet his mercy is more. That we could stand guiltless. Oh, there's always something that's right. Start with what's right, not what's wrong. And I will quickly go to the other side of this coin. Um, this next house rule probably deserves more stage time than this, but I just wanted to hold them together. Start with what's right, not what's wrong, and remember what's right as you work on what's wrong. And where that's coming from, if you read the, the letter to the Corinthians, this is exactly the structure that's built into this book. The first nine chapters, here's what's right, and then verse 10. Okay, now let's talk about the fact that you have divisions. But what you'll find as you go through the, the letter to the Corinthians is each of the issues that they were dealing with, Paul, as he writes to them, is pulling them back to the truth of who they are in Christ. What they have in Christ is the antidote to all of their problems. He doesn't say, okay, now I've buttered you up. Now let me, I'm going to let you have it. He keeps calling them back to who they are in Christ. And it's the same for us. We want to not lose sight of what's right is we work on the many things in our lives that aren't where we want them to be. Again, it's how we battle discouragement and disillusionment. It's how we stay gospel optimists. You know, some of why we don't open up actually to the rebukes that are gen gently and clearly given in our lives, whether by our friends, by the word of God, um, in, our, in our church community, is we forget what's so right. That, that we, we, we don't really want to see because our functional understanding of who we are isn't that we're saints because of Christ, it's that we're screw-ups. 
And so the more that we can keep loud, all of these truths that are ours in Christ, and this is just, this is just nine verses. The Bible's loaded with more. We're able to open ourselves up to the things that need to grow. You know, what if you really knew that there's no condemnation? Like, what if we really knew that? What if, and I admit I don't, and I'm learning. What if we knew there's guaranteed glorification? What if we knew we really were guiltless? What if we knew that the most true thing about us are not those things that need to change, but who we are in Christ? Start with what's right, not what's wrong. Remember what's right as you work on what's, what's wrong. We want to get that truth in us. Over, over the last number of years, I, I've kind of fell in love with a show called Alone. Um, as an introvert, I really resonated with it. Basically, you take 10 people out into the wilderness somewhere and you drop them off into their own little camp areas and they, ha- they live alone. They have to build their own shelters and procure food and find water and basically whoever can last the longest wins and they have a little satellite phone that they can call and be rescued and say, hey, I'm tapping out and someone comes to get them. Basically, the whole show, though, is about smoking meat. That's, that, that's basically the whole, <laughs> the whole show. <laughs> it's like, here's how to make a smoker in the outback. And so someone takes, you know, sticks and little ferns and, you know, for ranches or whatever and you know you catch fish but the, the thing is like once the lake freezes over it makes it a lot harder to catch fish you know or you shoot a moose you know oh my goodness I got a moose but how am I going to keep 500 pounds of meat from rotting I don't have a refrigerator and so what you do is you smoke it and so I've watched a lot of you know after like 10 seasons of this I feel like I'm a master <laughs> smoker I'm a master smoker but not in the Bellingham sense um, okay you like that better than the first service. All right. Um, but so you're watching, you know, and what they do is they, they create the, the, the right amount of smoke, the right amount of flame, and just like, it just seeps into the, the, the fish. It just lingers there for hours and hours and for days. And what smoking does to, to the fish is that it actually, it kills any of the parasites or bacteria that are, that are on the meat. It, it makes the, the skin of it impervious or, or more impervious to it getting uh, uh, bacteria to, to grow on it over the, you know, the, the coming weeks and, and months that it might be needed. It also, I think, makes it taste way better. That's what Paul is trying to do for the Corinthians, and I believe God is trying to do for us, is to get Christ to infuse in us for us to roll around in who Christ is, to, to marinate in that atmosphere. If you look at this text, eight times the name Jesus is used in nine verses, nine times the word Christ, six times the word Lord. And it doesn't even capture all the little prepositional phrases of in him. This text is loaded with Christ. As followers, we're meant to be loaded with Christ. It's where it kills the bacterias of discouragement makes us resistant to despair. You can say this, no matter how things look, in Christ, there's always something right. Again, the first house rule is about honesty. These two are about gospel optimism. It's about perspective. It's about where to look in uh, Robert Murray or in in, uh, the the book um, Mind Gym, An Athlete's Guide to Inner Excellence by Gary Mack. He says, he says, don't look where you don't want to go. You know, every golfer knows that. You stand on the tee box, 
You got 20, 20 yards of water in front of you. You can hit the, no problem. I can get up over 20 yards. I could throw the ball that far. You stand on that tee box and all you can do is stare at the water. Don't go in the water. Don't go in the water. Don't go in the water. And then you hit it three yards into the water. I mean, like don't look where you don't want to go. So where do we look? Christ. Christ. Robert Murray McShane, his beautiful line, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. Get him loud. Get him loud. Let me, let me finish the quote. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty and yet such meekness and grace and all for sinners, even the chief. Listen to this beautiful phrase. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eyes settled on you in love and repose in his mighty arms. We start with what's right. We, we remember what's right. We remember Christ and we remember what Christ has done and we remember who we are in Christ and it will start to free us to work on what's wrong without discouragement, disillusionment, bitterness, anger for ourselves and maybe towards others. Let me finish the McShane quote. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart and there'll be no room for folly or the world or Satan or the flesh. See, he's just saying what the house rules said, just saying a lot better. The more Christ gets in front of us, the more we remember who he is all the folly, all the mess, all the rebellion, all the sin, it starts to fade and get replaced with him. Today, you are God's if you're in Christ. You are a saint if you are Christ. You're a reason for thanksgiving and joy. You have gifts. You're guaranteed to get there. And you are right now and will be guiltless at the day of Christ. Oh, we got a lot to work on for sure. But let's stay gospel optimist because there's always something right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, might you grant us the grace to follow the rhythms of your word, which always ground how we're to act and what you've done, which always ground our working out our salvation in the fact that we are saved, God. The promises of your word in this text are, are wide-reaching, and yet it's nine verses. There's so much more offered, and they're all ours through faith in Christ. They're offered today to those here who do not have faith in Christ. But all of these beautiful truths, God, are, are given through turning from our sin and saying we need a Savior, turning from our folly and our mess, and turning back to Christ. And none of this is about our obeying, it's about Christ's obedience. God, your standards are not low. They're so high we can never reach them, but Christ has reached them for us to give it to, to us who fall so far short. So may we be able to leave this place with a reminder, no matter what, oh goodness, God, a, so many memories play in our heads, so many things we fall short, so many ways we want to be better in God, we do. But make even louder what's right in Christ that your mercy is more. And we have a solid foundation in which to work our stuff out from. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.